Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. We uh, missed last week. And this is, didn't we, have we missed two weeks? Really? Yeah. We've, one year. One? We only missed one? Okay. Well, I feel like I'm way behind here. So, so uh, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, continue to pray for, come in, come in, pray for Brother Ron Biggs and Brother Ken Rapp, who are members of our class, and uh, think about them. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, and we do pray for our brothers who are undergoing great trials at this time and ask for your grace in their lives, for healing, for, for help for their families as they try to navigate these problems. We're thankful for the time we have together tonight to look at your word and be reminded and encouraged of uh, what you have for us, how we should act and respond in various situations. Pray that we'll be able to learn from what Paul has written to the Corinthians, and this will cause us to uh, strive to seek to please you and to pro make progress in our own personal holiness, our own sanctification. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are looking at chapter 9, uh, remember 8 through 11 is about this Greek word, adelothuton, which is hard to translate, it's translated here, food offered to idols, there's some debate about exactly what that is, but the position I hold is that uh, this is food offered to idols in the temple, um, in the temples at Corinth. What's that? 28. <clears throat> uh, page 28. But I'm just kind of reviewing here a second. And uh, so uh, Paul, you know, as I've said, this is, it's, it's a little confusing the way Paul writes this because ultimately he's going to prohibit them from going to these temples and in having and, and, and having uh, and participating in the in the festivals, whatever is going on there, the meals, because it involves pagan worship. Always, when you go to the temple, you're involved in pagan worship. So you would think, and this is also uh, what Acts 15 was talking about. We talked about that earlier. What was prohibited there. And you would think maybe that Paul would just say, as I've said before, okay, don't go there. And the reason you can't go there is because it's true that this is just food. And later he'll say, you know, if, even though this food may have first been offered in the temple and then sold in a meat market, you can eat the meat in the meat market. So there's nothing contaminating about the meat itself. So you think Paul would just say, okay, don't go to the temple because they're worshiping idols, you're, you're being part of this worship, and there's demons behind, Satan's behind this idol worship. So you think he could just say that. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't start with that because apparently the Corinthians, many Corinthians, um, have held a position that it's not wrong to go to these temple as he starts off in chapter uh, 8 talking about, because we know they're, 
there aren't, there's only one true God, so these other just are just make-up gods, they're not real gods. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with us going to the temple. We've been going all our life. You can't expect us to stop. Everything important happens at these temples. So we can go and participate. We know that this is just all a bunch of nonsense, but we can go. And apparently, some Corinthians who have been saved, they find it difficult to go because they... Because they see that you know this worship is going on. We're sacrificing, and you know they come out of an idolatry. They came out of idolatry, and Paul describes them as having being weak, a weak conscience, and so um, he's he's worried about the fact that these believers, some believers, are encouraging apparently. And he says, he says in chapter eight, if if they see you sitting in the idol temple, if they see you there. Won't they be encouraged to engage in this idolatry and so forth? And that could lead them back into it, maybe, because they're going to the temple. You know, they haven't made a complete break. I mean, you know, you and I, if we visited some place in India and went to some temple, it's unlikely you and I would be tempted to become idol worshipers there, you know. But we didn't come out of idolatry. We, you know, we don't have a background in that kind of stuff. But these people did. So the first thing he starts off with is to say the harm. He's, he's worried about, you know, forgetting about the problem about this is ultimately wrong. Just think about it's wrong because what you're doing to these believers, these, these weak believers, weak conscience, you're, you, you could cause them to go back and idolatry. So this is wrong just on that level. What you're doing to your brother is wrong. If you cause your brother to stumble, to go into sin, and uh, to go back and adopt, that's just wrong. And so that's the first problem. And so you should be willing to give up going to the temple. It's hard for them. They don't want to, but you should be willing to. So in chapter 9, uh, Paul decides he's going to use himself as an example of someone who gave up his privileges, his rights, I mean, they're claiming the right to go to the temple. And let's just assume you've got that right. What you're doing to your bro fellow brethren is wrong, even if you got this right. If you, even if it was a true, genuine right that you had, it's wrong to do what you're doing. And Paul's going to use himself as an example here of, a, of an apostle. He says, I have certain rights, but I'm willing to give those up for the, for the gospel. Sometimes, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to forego those. So in the first part of the chapter, you know, remember it's based upon these two questions in 9-1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He deals with the first one that is free. I'm free to do as I want to with these rights. But the first thing is, am I not an apostle? I have certain apostolic rights. So he starts talking about that in chapters 9, 4 through 14. Um, and so he goes into, we've gone over that a long discussion about his rights, the right to do this, the right to do this, bring a wife along, so forth like this. He, he discusses the authority for those rights and so forth. And then notice in 15 through 18, he starts talking about his restraint. Um, he starts talking about his restraint that he does, he kind of gets into the subject before, <laughs> Uh, 
before, uh, you know, uh, before he gets to the full discussion. But then in verses 19 through 22, we started into that. He, this is Paul's apostolic freedom. So he starts talking here about his freedom to uh, give up these rights that he has for the sake of the gospel. Um, and he says, just to review here since it's been a week, verse 19, though I am free, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as, as I can. So Paul says, I'm free, I have these freedom, and I, but I've made myself a slave to win as many as possible. And he's, remember we talked about last week, verse, or two weeks ago, verse 20, uh, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself was not under the law so as to win those under the law. So we're talking about various different social settings that Paul found himself in. And when he was among Jews, he didn't purposely offend them. He didn't violate, when he was with Jews, he didn't just purposely violate their food laws because he didn't want to, he, he wanted to try to win them to Christ, so he's not going to do anything that they think is immoral, you know, around them. I mean, he can eat his ham sandwich, but he's not going to eat his ham sandwich there among them because he wants to uh, be able to win them to Christ. So he was kosher, as they say today, when he's among them and so forth. Um, he says then in verse... Uh, in verse uh, 21, to those not having the law, that would be Gentiles, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. So uh, among Gentiles, Paul says, he behaves as one who is not under Jewish law, but he quickly explains, that doesn't mean I am free from God's moral law. And remember, I have this chart there. Uh, is it page 28? It's on your paper there? Yeah. So, you know, we have God's eternal moral law. There's always been right and wrong. Murder has always been wrong. Lying's always been wrong. It's wrong in Eden. It's wrong among the patriarchs. Then it's incorporated legislatively into the Mosaic law. But also in that Mosaic law are civil and ceremonial aspects that are part of that law. This is a theocratic kingdom we have with the Mosaic kingdom. Um, and so uh, those are all part of that. And so now that we, we're no longer under the law, that we're not, we're, not, that we're not under the Mosaic law, Christ is the end of the law, we're told Romans 10.4, um, we're still under God's moral law. He calls it Christ's law. And we would say that's, you know, God's moral law. And that's, you know, the commandments we find in the New Testament. Remember, I don't know if you remember, but I did a kind of a four weeks, is it four weeks? I can't remember, two weeks series on this one time. And I have that material if you if you want to if you if you want to get it. In fact, it may be in the resource on that. But it, I did a kind of a two week thing about trying to explain the role of the law, the Mosaic law, in the life of the Christian. You know, and how we 
explaining what I'm just talking about here, that uh, we're still under God's moral law, which never changes, but now it's, we th Paul calls it Christ's law because we have the commandments of the New Testament. So basically for us as Christians, we look to the New Testament to regulate our lives, but we also look back to the Old Testament for those moral principles that are eternal. So we can delve into the Mosaic Law and learn from the Mosaic Law, but it takes a little exegesis, it takes a little, a little figuring out sometimes to separate the you know, things that are not eternal, things that are just civil, ceremonial, you know, that's gone, and, and certain civil aspects and so on. But we still see God's eternal perspective there. So, <laughs> that brings us to uh, verse 22. He's still talking about giving up his rights and privileges for the sake of the gospel, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. So I say here, Paul now mentions this sociological category, the weak. There's some debate about what this weak is. I take it with others that this is similar to what we saw in 126 and 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. What he's talking about here, remember, is he's saying that the Corinthians have a very high opinion of themselves, but they really weren't among the most influent, uh, rich, you know, necessarily wealthy people. They were just average people. And God chose you to shame the wise, that is, um, you know, it's, it's going to be quite a, a, a revelation, ultimately, to some very brilliant people who have rejected Christianity. It's a very sad thing that, you know, they, they're, they're so brilliant, they reject Christianity, they reject the Bible, they can't believe it's true, and then here is this guy with a third grade education, you know, with an IQ of 90, and then here's this guy with an IQ of 180, and the, the, the guy with an IQ of 90 with a third grade education is in heaven, and the guy with 180 is unfortunately in hell. <laughs> so it's going to shame, it, it's un very unfortunate, you know, but that's, that's, what, that's what Paul is talking about here. And he mentions here also, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak. So he, he calls these people weak. You know, weak in a power sense, in a socioeconomic sense, to shame the strong. And so the weak in this passage includes the, probably the majority of the Corinthians themselves. So I think that's what he's talking about here. The concluding sentence, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, summarizes the general argument. So this is the principle you know, of servanthood. Uh, the principle of the cross operates in Paul's life. This I'm going to serve, I'm going to put myself under. Uh, he's not compromising the gospel itself. He's not compromising the gospel, but he's willing to 
become all things to all people in matters that don't count. He's not compromising the matters that do count, the truth, the gospel, or the moral principles, or that kind of thing. But a lot of things don't count. They're just preferences. Verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessing. Paul concludes, I say, his argument with a final clear statement of his primary motivation in life, all this for the sake of the gospel. Paul means for the sake of the progress of the gospel. The final clause, that I may share in its blessings, refers to Paul's sharing with the Corinthians in the benefits of the gospel. Paul is anticipating his discussion in verses 24 to 27 that's going to follow here. So Paul is now placing himself alongside these Corinthians that he's writing to. And along with them, he hopes to share in the final blessings of the gospel. But this is not guaranteed. Now, I mean, that sounded a little strong. <laughs> in the sense that he must persevere. So, you know, we believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the doctrine that says, you know, it's not, it's not you know, it, it's true. Once saved, always saved is true. If you're truly saved, <laughs> you're always saved, you'll go to heaven. But once professed doesn't mean that you have genuinely possessed, you know, and that's the, that's the point we're bringing here. So the Bible discusses this doctrine of we have to continue in faith and good works, uh, you know. Now that's a hard thing. To, I'm, I don't want to get into a discussion of perseverance here, but, you know, it's a hard thing to judge sometimes because people fall away. They fall away for a while, a good time. I always think of this man that I know who was a deacon and, and he fell away for years, you know, but he came back to the faith, you know. So it seems like he, he, you know, he, did, he is a very faithful Christian now, you know. But so, you know, it's very hard to tell sometimes about people what exactly is going on. But it's dangerous when people depart from the faith and, and turn from Christ and those kinds of things. Um, and the point he's making here is, when people go into sin and continue in sin, we worry about their eternal salvation. Did they really, are they really regenerate? And now he's worried about the Corinthians. <laughs> when you can go to these pagan temples and enjoy this worship and all that goes on there, the sin that's going on, well, boy, that raises questions in Paul's mind. Uh, it raises questions about, are they really persevering in the faith? Are they genuine Christians? And, you know, he, he's, throughout this epistle, he's raising these questions. And finally, remember, I mentioned that verse several times, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, he says. So he's always, he's always concerned in his mind that there are people who, and we, we think about it in this church, <laughs> We think about it since I've been here, that people who are members of this church have just gone away, and they just, you know, and we, uh, that's very concerning, you know. Who can say for sure, but it's very, very concerning. And Paul is very, very concerned here about what they are doing, the kind of activities with this thing. Now, sometimes this passage is used to uh, has been looked to for the idea of 
what may be called accommodation in evangelism. And sometimes that means adapting the message or adapting the truth to the language and perspective of the recipients. But this passage doesn't offer any support or any basis for that kind of adapting the message in the sense of changing the message. Uh, this, this, this has to do with how one lives, how one behaves among the people you want to evangelize. Remember, I gave that example of Hudson Taylor, who was criticized greatly when he went to China because he adopted the dress of a Chinese man. He wore his hair in a ponytail, you know, like that. And other missionaries criticized him for that. But he, he was thinking, I think, along these lines, you know, that's not changing the message or anything like that. He's just adapting himself to the culture. It wasn't immoral. He didn't see anything immoral about the dress or anything like that. Uh, he thought it would be more helpful to evangelize those people. So one can modify one's behavior and customs for the sake of evangelism uh, as long as you know, it's not contrary to God's moral law. Missionaries go to certain countries, they may have to adapt their dress or certain other customs, you know, to the as long as it's not immoral, you know, uh, to to what what they're finding uh, to fit in with the, with the people there. So Paul is interested in knocking down unnecessary unnecessary barriers to the gospel, unnecessary barriers to hearing the gospel. All right. We come now to verses 24 through 27, this exhortation and example. I say this transition, this section forms a transition by bringing chapter 9 to its conclusion and at the same time preparing for a return to the argument against going to the cultic meals in chapter 10, 1 through 22. That professing believers would continue to engage in idolatry by going to pagan temples suggests the possibility that their faith is not genuine. So Paul exhorts the Corinthians about their need to persevere in genuine faith with illustrations from the nearby Greek games. The most well-known <clears throat> were the Olympic, Olympic Games. They were celebrated you know, every four years in Olympia. Uh, but Corinth had its own celebrated games uh, in um, Isthmia. Remember, I think I showed this map before. Well, no, there it is. So you can see on the map there, if you can see to the right, you see Isthmia, which is just a suburb of Corinth, like Lechium, Chromos, and Crea. Those are all just kind of little suburbs there. And at Isthmia, every two years, there were games. A lot of Greek cities had games. Um, they were, you know, they were very popular. And so um, Paul, uh, and it, what's interesting about this is that we're pretty sure when Paul was in Corinth because, um, because of his encounter in, in Acts 8, uh, Acts 18 with the proconsul, uh, Gallio. And we know exactly when Gallio became proconsul in, in July of AD 51. <clears throat> and uh, 
So most people think Paul was there from A.D. 50. We talked about at the beginning of this class to 52. So he would have been there, you know, most likely during the Olympic, during the uh, Isthmian Games of 51. Uh, people can, you can make all kinds of speculations because there were no permanent facilities there. It's not like they build an Olympic village today. <laughs> they build facilities for people to stay. So people stayed in tents, and Paul was a tent maker, you know, so he may have been involved. We can only surmise. There were six basic uh, events at these games. There was racing, racing, and Paul alludes to that here. Wrestling, <clears throat> jumping, boxing, he alludes to that one. Hurling the javelin and throwing the discus. Those were the six basic events. Uh, I say here, the primary point of Paul's illustrations from the games is the imperative of verse 24, B. Run in such a way as to get the prize. <clears throat> this idea controls the entire section. Paul is urging the Corinthians to run the Christian life while exercising proper self-control so as to obtain the eschatological reward. That's salvation at the end. Paul commonly speaks of our salvation as a future reward 12 times. Like, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved? Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, you know, if you look at the word saved in... Um, the New Testament, it's used in the past tense, we have been saved. It's used in the present tense, 1 Corinthians 1, we are being saved. And it's used in the future tense, we will be saved, which corresponds, you know, maybe to these three aspects of sanctification, past, present, and future. So, you know, we like to say we are saved or we have been saved, but there's still a future part. You know, we will be saved ultimately, new body, resurrection body, and so forth like that. So um, Paul is saying uh, we need to run the race. We need to run in such a way as to win the prize, this future reward. That means to persevere. Those whose lives are characterized by sin are not exercising proper self-control. They're not persevering. And by going to these temples with all the sin that's involved, the idolatry, they're not exercising proper self-control. I say that in passage is an important one dealing with the doctrine of perseverance, sometimes called perseverance of the saint. Grudem says, Wayne Grudem in his theology, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have truly been truly born again. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints emphasizes both God's preservation and the believer's need to persevere, that is, to continue in their Christian faith. The parallel concepts, concepts of preservation and perseverance are set forth in 1 Peter 1.5. Who are kept by the power of God. There's God's preservation. Kept, but how are we kept? Through faith unto salvation. The believer is kept by God. He's eternally secure. But that keeping includes the continuing faith of the believer. He's not kept irrespective of his faith. If one does not continue in faith, that is proof that he is not being kept by God. Um, 
I, I won't say more about that. I could. A genuine believer will never voluntarily deny Christ. I say voluntarily. People will do anything under torture. You can't, you know, any, anything's possible when you're being tortured to death. We have come to share, Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. This verse is saying that if we continue to believe as we did at the beginning of our salvation experience, then this is proof that we have come to share in Christ, that is, we are genuinely saved. Those who, are permanent, who, are, who permanently, permanently give up their profession of faith prove they were never true believers to begin with. Colossians 1, 23, Paul says, But now He has reconciled you if you continue in your faith. A true believer will also persevere or continue in good works. Good works have no part in saving us, but they are the inevitable result of salvation. Paul said that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Although the New Testament epistles were written primarily to Christians, they are filled with warnings about the consequences of not continuing good works. Paul told the Galatians, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why write this to Christians? Because the Galatians, like all the rest of us, are professors of faith in Christ. The late R.C. Sproul said, Nobody was ever saved by profession of faith. You have to possess faith. And the real proof of the genuineness of one's faith is perseverance in good works. As James says, faith without works is dead. Christians who are living a sinful pattern, notice, pattern of life have no right to feel secure about their salvation. This does not say, however, that a true believer may not fall into sin and carnality. This can happen to any of us. However, a genuine believer will not remain in that condition forever. A true believer will repent of sin and begin again to produce spiritual fruit. In other words, one cannot simply make a profession of faith, never produce any fruit or good works in their life, and yet have confidence that they will go to heaven. So, that I think is the truth of Scripture. But I guess I could say I was going to say that there have been people who have denied this. Uh, so, um, the late Zane Hodges, who was a teacher at Dallas Seminary, he, he denied this. He denied. And there's actually a whole society, uh, free grace society, called free grace society, it's called free grace, who denied this. They believe that uh, you don't have to produce any good works. St. Hodges even said at the end, towards the end of his life, you can deny Christ. You can even deny Christ and it doesn't make any difference, you know. And this is, this is totally contrary to Scripture. I say in this context, the area where the Corinthians lack self-control is in the area of insisting on the right of going to the temples and engaging in a dollar's eating in pagan temples. So Paul's uh, purpose in this section is to exhort them to proper conduct. Um, and it also serves as a clear warning in this passage. If they fail to run properly, 
and so as a warning, it's going to anticipate what Paul says in chapter 10. So in 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So I say here, do not know that indicates Paul is continuing his preceding argument, in this case by offering an illustration that will bring the, Paul's main concerns going back to 8, 7 through 13 into focus. The illustration is taken from the runners in the various Greek games, and as we noted, the Corinthians could be well, would be well acquainted with Paul's illustration given their own Isthmian games. In these ancient games, there was only one prize per race, the victor's wreath, which was given to the winner. So the Christian life here is uh, conceived of as a race. This is an image or a figure, an illustration we find throughout the New Testament. Remember Paul says 3.14, Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Hebrews 12.1, let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. So this is a common image. So the object of the race here is to receive the prize. Um, that is the award for winning the race. So, er, uh, so we as believers, Paul says, should exert every effort to win the prize. Um, and the prize here is eternal life itself. Um, it's not a reward above or beyond eternal life. It's eternal life. Now, Paul's illustration here is not that the Christian life is a competition. We're not in competition with each other as, you know, in a race, a normal race. Uh, but that in living the Christian life, as in the games, self-control is necessary in order to win the prize. Only one gets the prize. And you've got to run in such a way as to get the prize. And that's going to be the exhortation. Run, verse 24, run in such a way to get the prize. That's the point of the whole paragraph, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do to get a crown that will last forever. So I say here the phrase goes into strict training is actually one word in the original that has the idea of self-control. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should not marry. In the games, winning required self-control, self-discipline, even for the best athletes. Any athlete entering in the games was required to go into 10 months of strict training and was subject to disqualification if they failed to do so. So Paul says that in the Christian life, self-control is essential in order to win the prize. In the case of the Corinthians, Paul is concerned that their insistence on the right to eat the cultic meals in the pagan temples may indicate a lack of self-control and thus a lack of perseverance. Therefore, they may be in danger of not winning the prize. So for the Corinthians, uh, to exercise self-control will mean not simply foregoing some rights for the sake of others, as we talked about in chapter 8, but also foregoing some things altogether because they're inherently incompatible with the contest. So what I'm trying to say here is um, 
They have to exercise self-control. Chapter 8 is don't go to those temples because you're influencing these Christians in the wrong way. You need to exercise self-control and not go into those temples because of what, how it affects others. But also, as we'll see when we get to chapter 10, they need to exercise self-control here, not go to the temple because it's incompatible with, a, with, the Christian content, with the Christian life, the Christian context. Chapter 10, verses 14 through 22 will make that clear. I say here the Corinthians should be willing to exercise self-control. Paul is calling for uh, the self-control Paul is calling for when one considers the prize, a crown that will last forever. So he says the athlete goes into training to get this, what he calls the victor's crown. It's a perishable crown, he says, that will not last. Um, from what we understand, uh, this perishable crown was often something just made of celery that had already withered when it was presented. But Paul says we're going to get a crown that lasts forever, the crown of life, eternal life. Um, so the point is, Paul is trying to say this is such a valuable thing, eternal life, that it should affect the way you live right now in the present. Um, compare that to James 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Verse 26, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Now remember this is all an image, an illustration of the Christian life. Running the race is like living the Christian life. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Paul now draws a conclusion from the previous illustration and applies it to his own life. Paul views himself as a runner in a race and he wants the Corinthians to follow the, his example. Remember 11.1, he'll say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul does not run like someone running aimlessly, which means running with no fixed goal. Paul's intent is to win the prize. So people who enter the race, enter a race, do so because they have a goal in mind, as Paul has a goal in mind. So Paul's conduct that he's been talking about, his giving up his rights that he's described in the previous section is for the sake of the gospel with the ultimate purpose that he can share in its blessings. Um, so Paul's conduct is an example of his own perseverance. Now Paul adds a second illustration from the games here that is designed to make the same point. He's like a boxer. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He's not like a boxer who's just beating the air. last phrase could refer to a boxer who fails to land effective blows or maybe shadow boxing prior to the fight. Hard to say. In either case, the point is the same uh, as the illustration of the runner. Paul runs or fights with a clear objective. He wants to win the prize. Verse 27, no... I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I say that no indicates that Paul is contrasting the foolish boxer 
who would merely beat the air and not hit his opponent with his own conduct as one who boxes with real purpose. Paul's goal is to win the prize of a crown that will last forever. And to do so, he must, as he argued in verse 25, exercise self-control. Paul makes this point by continuing the box illustration he introduced in verse 26. Paul, the whole person, I know he says, I strike a blow to my body, but that's, we're talking about an illustration of the body. When you box, you hit the body. But the illustration is talking about his Christian life, his, 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 he, he as a person. It's, it's a metaphor called syndicate. But the whole person, Paul, the whole person, must exercise self-control. But because of the boxing metaphor, the object of the blow becomes Paul's body, which he adds is made his slave in order to serve the purpose in his gospel. Again, we must not think that Paul is speaking of beating or subduing his own physical body because it's sinful. Sin does not lie in our bodies, but in our immaterial aspect. So just that's a truth that we need to remember. Sin does not lie in our physical bodies. It's in our immaterial aspects. Now, our bodies are affected by sin, but it's, it's, in our, it's our immaterial part that is inherently sinful. Uh, we have a sin, sometimes we say a sin nature or a sin capacity. Uh, that's our immaterial aspect. It's not that our bodies are inherently sinful. Um, sin doesn't lie in our bodies. In order to, pers- pers- I mean, and people have thought that through the years, you know. Um, people have beaten their bodies, uh, you know, with all kinds of instruments. Uh, I mean, I always think about Roman Catholics doing that. I don't know if they still do it, but, I, you know, down through the ages, Christians have beaten themselves with all kinds of things because they, they try to reduce temptation and so forth like that, you know, uh, thinking that, you know, that the body is really what's doing that to me. Um, sin doesn't lie in our... It's lies in our for, uh, Paul says elsewhere, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. As I noted, by body, Paul intends myself as in verse 19, which would include the body, but not but only as it is the vehicle of the present, his present earthly life. Paul's striking, Paul's point is the need for self-restraint, which means that in Paul's case, striking a blow to my body probably refers to the hardships which he voluntarily subjected himself in preaching to the Corinthians, which included working with his own hands, and in which he turned meant suffering the hardships mentioned. In chapter 4, remember, he... Um, That's one there. Sorry. Uh, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. Remember that? Uh, we are in rags, brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. We're cursed. We're blessed. We're persecuted. We endure it. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this point. So Paul endures all this uh, for the sake of the gospel. It's part of his own perseverance. Paul, in this way, disciplined himself for the sake of the gospel so he could share in his promises. The final purpose clause, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize 
expresses Paul's real intent. With the previous illustrations, Paul is telling the Corinthians that he exercises self-control in all things so that after he has fulfilled his tasks laid on him by divine necessity, he himself will not come short of the prize. Failing to win the prize is expressed with a final athletic metaphor, metaphor disqualified for the prize. So this has been the point of the illustration from the beginning, that the Corinthians need to exercise self-control lest they fail to win the eschatological prize. And he'll say it, as I said, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test. Fail the test is the same word as disqualified in 927. I myself will not fail the test for the prize, be disqualified. Same exact word. Paul is saying here. Well, that brings us then to chapter 10 here, the conclusion, which is no going to the temples. The need to run the race and compete well to receive the prize functions as a transition at 10, 1 through 13, where Paul warns the Corinthians about the danger of apostasy, which is a real danger. Apostasy is when a person who professes faith turns from the faith. It's someone who is not truly saved, but they profess faith. We call that an apostate. They, they turn from the faith. They weren't, they weren't truly born again. So Paul is warning here about this danger of apostasy, which is a real danger in light of the insistence of some of the Corinthians on attending the cultic meals in the pagan temples. I mean, why can't they see the problem with this idolatry? The specific cause for concern is idolatry pure and simple. Paul speaks directly to those who are opposing him on this matter. Now first, here in chapter 10, he's going to use some Old Testament examples to warn the Corinthians about the grave danger they're in. That is, there's some examples in the Old Testament that parallel the conduct that the Corinthians are engaging in. Um, and Paul, so first of all, in verses 1 through 13, he's going to bring up these illustrations from Israel um, after they came out of Egypt and what happened to them with their idolatry. And, 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 he used, and, and, and there's some language there that exactly parallels what's happening to the Corinthians. So it's very convenient for Paul. And then in verses 14 and following, He's just going to come out and flat say going to the temple is just incompatible with the Christian life. You know, I'm just thinking here, it's, I don't know if there's anything, this, must, this is really hard for these people, as I said. They, they go to the temples all the time. That's where they have entertainment. They have celebrations, birthdays. <laughs> You know, and you, to say don't go, it's, 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 not, it's not an easy thing to do, you know. Um, so, um, so Christians, I guess, today may face that, you know. I grew up in the South in a Christian culture, so when I became a Christian, a lot too much didn't change. We couldn't go to the movies, but <laughs> we couldn't go to the movies. My wife never went to the movies until 
she was, uh, I shouldn't tell this about her sin, should I? But I'll tell her. <laughs> she, she didn't go to the movies until 19, about 80. Let's see, so how old would she have been? She was about 31 or some 30 before she went to the movies, you know. And the, if you see her, you can ask her, what was the first movie you ever saw? <laughs> it was, it was, uh, what's that second Star Wars movie? The Empire Strikes Back. It was The Empire Strikes Back, you know. We didn't know anything about Star Wars. We didn't see the first one. And, you know, the problem with that second one, it's a transition to the third. You know, there's like, there's the first one, and the, tr and the second one doesn't mean much, you know. It gets you to the third one, you know. So we saw the second one. It was great because all these things were happening on the screen, you know, all these fantastic graphics and all that. But we didn't really understand what was going on. But that's the first movie she ever now. When I grew up, you know, I went to the movies every Saturday, every Saturday, and I'd get the bus. You know, I was like eight or nine years old. I got on a city bus and went to the movies. My parents let me go downtown to the movies, eight or nine years old, and nobody thought anything about this as a kid. Went to the movies, and they had two westerns, and then they had the, what they call serials, S-E-R-I-A-L-S. At one time, I was telling the Elwert sisters about this, about going to the movies and having cereals. Well, they thought I was eating Cheerios, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had, these, they had these cereals where they had, it was like they had Batman and Superman, and they were 15 minutes, and they were like 15 episodes. So they wanted you to come back every week and see the next episode, next episode. And at the end of the episode, it was always a cliffhanger. So Batman would be falling off a cliff, you know, and you'd see he's gonna die, but you, the next episode, you see, oh, he caught a tree or something, you know. So it was always a, a cliffhanger like that. So you'd come back every week, and you'd, you'd have the, the, uh, the two, ep two westerns, and you'd have these cereals in between, and you'd get these milk duds. So I was looking up milk duds the other day, you know, trying to find the, the old milk duds. The you can see on the, the boxes, they have milk duds today, but it's made by Hershey, but these were different. I don't know. It says they were caramel. I just can't remember exactly, but I know that I used to always get those milk duds. Did anybody ever get milk duds? Oh, oh got milk duds? Oh, God. Well, anyway, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think about, you know, a Christian today uh, who comes from the... It is getting more difficult. A Christian who comes out of the pagan world today may have to give up some things they were, they're very, they're, they, they like to do that they, they, they have done, you know, because they were involved sinful activities and things like that. So this was a real problem for these people to give this up. So it wasn't easy for them, but it was totally incompatible with the Christian life. Well, let's look at here the example of Israel and the danger of apostasy. So the point is, these are professing Christians, but we're all professing Christians. And if you fall away, if we fall away, you know, if we turn from Christ, fall away, there's always a concern that maybe you never really were regenerate. Maybe you never really were a Christian. You were just, you're an apostate. You just fell away. Now, people who lose their, who believe you can lose your salvation use that term of true Christians. Like free will Baptists will say, 
they'll look at the same person. They'll have a person who joins their church, you know, and they'll say, oh, well, they got saved, but they lost it, you know. So we're looking at the same experience. They call them apostates too. <laughs> but uh, if you believe you can't lose it truly, then we call apostates people who are just made professions of faith, but they renege on that and, and so forth. But as I say, it's hard to call someone that for certain. We don't really know for certain. Only God knows that, you know. But it presents real concerns. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When you see Christians acting sinfully, it's a real problem. It's just a real, it's a real thing to be concerned about, you know. And I know you've seen it in your family. I've seen it in my family, you know, and I worry about it all the time. I think about it. <laughs> I do worry about it. My sister, I think about her, you know, and people in my family who have made professions of faith, but, you know, there's just not much there. There's just not a lot there. And what, what do you do with that kind of thing? You know, it's just a tough, tough thing. So here's the example. Paul wants to give them an example of some, some people who are doing, who did what they are doing. In, in the preceding argument, Paul urged the Corinthians to run the Christian life in order to win the prize. Remember, we talked about that 924 through 925 through 27. The crown that, to win the prize, the crown that will last forever. The application of the imagery to himself in verses 26 through 27 serves as a warning that those who fail to exercise self-control may also fail to obtain the prize. Now in 10 through 1 through 13, Paul forcefully pursues this warning. And so he warns the Corinthians of the seriousness of persisting in this idolatry. The argument is divided into two parts. In the first section... Paul puts forth Israel as typical of those who failed to obtain the prize. This illustration from the history of Israel works for Paul since there is a sense in which Israel also had their own kind of form of baptism and they kind of had their own Lord's Supper. It's just, it's just kind of an illustration. They didn't really have baptism. They didn't have a Lord. But they had kind of that and they had kind of that they're, they're similar to the Corinthians. That is, they had these spiritual privileges. They had spiritual privileges like the Corinthians have baptism and the Lord's Supper. They had privileges of passing through the water and the sea and eating that manna and so forth. They had privileges, and yet Israel failed to persevere, or the majority of them, because what happened to them? They died in the desert. They didn't go into the promised land. I say in this in the section verses 6 through 13 Paul applies this illustration from the life of Israel right to the Corinthians. Um, so uh, uh, the nature of this argument suggests that possibly those who think they are standing firm do so on the basis of a somewhat magical view of the ordinances. Now this is controversial here. Remember, this is the, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You know, I, I think that's a good possibility. Many commentators think that, and it's hard, we can't prove it, I can't prove it, but many commentators who think about this think that maybe the Corinthians thought that, you know, well, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you, and you do meet Christians. I mean, I met Christians. I remember 
when I was in Chattanooga, very large church, and um, you know a lot of people made professions of faith. They had a camp called Camp Joy, and every year they would have like 500 kids there at this camp, this summer camp. And it's pretty hard to get out of there without making a profession of faith. <laughs> and I can remember, you know, this couple that lived above us in an apartment we lived in in Chattanooga. And this woman telling me, hey, I'm good, man. I, you know, I, I, I was saved at Camp Joy, so I'm good, you know. What, what do I need? What, do I, what else do I, you know, what are you talking about, you know, but. You know, they didn't act like or live like Christians at all, you know, but I got, hey, I got it at Camp Joy. I got baptized. I'm good, you know. So some people think, and it may be true here, that they thought they're protected in some way. Hey, we, we can go to the temple because we're sort of protected. We're Christians. We've been, we got the baptism. We got the Lord's Supper. We're doing all these things. Nothing can hurt us. So um, their argument may have included some reference to the fact that the ordinance somehow, ordinances somehow protected them um, so that going to the temple and since these gods don't exist, then, you know, we're, we're in good shape. We're just fine because we, we got it. And uh, so that's where he starts. So I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brethren and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all were passed through the sea. They were all baptized. See, there it is, into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. But I see it's maybe 1013, so rather than just try to get into the argument here, I think we'll stop here for this week. All right. Thank you very much for bearing with me, and we will, Lord willing, pick up here next time. This should be, uh, what's the day here? 3, 1, 20.